I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. Over the past several episodes, we have been exploring the complex dynamics of gender and sexuality in the Islamic world, with a particular aim at dismantling a fabricated image of Islamic history, which is often projected backwards. This is obviously a very heavy task. It is a big burden, and it's a lot to go through. It's obvious that we won't be able to cover every single topic, and there are going to be a lot of areas that require further research and exploration. But what these podcasts hopefully offer is a starting point, a jumping-off point, from which you can springboard your own research, your own examinations, your own investigation into these topics. They also hopefully will equip you to have intelligent conversations. One of the things that I'm always telling my students is we're not always going to remember every single detail from history. I mean, that's what Google and Wikipedia are for. But what we can do is inform ourselves so that we can have intelligent conversations. And that really is my goal here, to present a a series of episodes um, on an incredibly crucial and critical topic so that you can begin to have intelligent conversations around it. I really think that the conversation of gender and sexuality in the Islamic world is uh, hampered by a lack of good information and hampered by some disingenuous backwards projecting and anachronistic interpretations, one that really flattens the nuances of Islamic history. And this podcast or this season of podcasts hopefully will change that to some extent. Now, we've talked about desire and sex in really indicating that the Islamic world had an understanding of sexuality that was incredibly positive, particularly for its time period and in comparison to its contemporaries. Sex was not a necessary evil for procreation, but was a glimpse of heaven. It was good. Orgasms were a good thing, and you should be trying to get your partner off, and they should be trying to get you off. And what does that tell us? It tells us that they had an openness towards sexual diversity because sex was viewed in mostly positive terms. We also talked about same-sex desire and love, which introduced the concept of queer love. What did it mean to be attracted to someone of the same sex in the Islamic world? Were there consequences? Were there repercussions? What were the anxieties around it? And hopefully in that episode you had a chance to see that The Islamic world in the pre-modern period was pretty homoerotic. It was open and relatively accepting of same-sex desire. Now, there were certainly periods of persecution and periods of oppression and periods of anxiety. But what we don't find in the Islamic world is the 
sort of mass persecution and enduring persecution that we find in Europe. In Europe, there are literal purges of, of, of gay individuals and uh, being accused of sodomy who are then executed. Massive purges. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of people. There's just nothing remotely close to that in the Islamic world. We also talked about uh, uh, gender non-conforming and non-binary people and individuals that may be trans, as we understand it today. Uh, the Mohanathun, for example, individuals that don't quite fit our understanding of gender and sexuality as fixed. This is important because we're going to continue to build on that theme today by talking about gender bending. And hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll come to understand gender as an expression that is socially contingent, historically constructed, and isn't fixed as a binary as we might imagine it today. The topic of gender bending, that is the changing of how you publicly present yourself is incredibly important. It allows us to see that gender is not fixed into man and woman, as we're often told it is, but rather is socially constructed, historically contingent, and crucially performed. Now, I want to pause here and talk about this word perform and performative. Contemporary public discourse, that is the discourse that happens online, uses the word performative as synonymous with inauthentic. That's not actually how gender theorists uh, have written about it. Like if you read Judith Butler, that's not what performative means in Judith Butler's writing, nor is performing and performative synonymous with inauthentic in any sort of gender writings. When people say that something is performative, they say that it is, it's basically a synonym for it's expressed socially. There is an act of performing it. There's an act of acting it out. Um, that doesn't mean it's inauthentic. Not all things that are performative are inauthentic. And that's very crucial for us to understand. That when we're saying that gender is performative, that doesn't mean that the performance is inauthentic to that person. A person can be authentically performing their gender. So I just wanted to highlight that. It seems like a weird nuance, but it's crucial because the word performative has been sort of misused in online discourse, as many things seem to be. There's always a disconnect between what scholars are actually writing and saying and then what some weird-ass Tumblrite or Twitterite. Is it Twitterite? Is that what we call them? Twitterati? Twitterati, that's a better word, right? Tumblrite and Twitterati. That someone will pick up that term and then just going to run with it. It's the same thing with like things like self-care. Um, you know, these are terms that have very specific meanings within particular contexts. And then they're just sort of taken and given a life. All their own. Emotional labor is another one. It's, they drive me sort of nuts when people talk about emotional labor. Oh, I, you know, you did emotional labor and you ask them what they did. And they're like, oh, I listened to my wife talk today and you're like that's not, that's not emotional labor that's just being a, a decent partner <laughs> shut the hell up <laughs> all right with that out of the way let's start by refreshing our memories we talked a little bit about the muhanathun these are those individuals who socially live outside of a gender binary so the muhanathun were technically born men as far as we can tell but who presented as female or 
who presented as feminine. And that's important here because it doesn't necessarily mean they change their biological sex, though certainly there is some evidence of gender-affirming surgery in the medieval period. Um, but it does mean that they presented as feminine. And that's crucial because sometimes the Mukhanathun are considered men who are feminine, and sometimes they're considered something entirely different, a sort of third sex. They're separate, they're their own thing. In other instances, they're understood as part of an umbrella category of, of female here. Now, we're told that they wore feminine garb, had bangles, and they decorated their hands with henna. And we have even the names of several of them from books like the Kitab Akhani, Al-Tuwais, Al-Dalal, Abada, and others who have been mentioned in, in the previous podcast. So we just set the stage already by looking at how people didn't always fit within a gender binary of male and female, masculine and feminine, that even the concept of masculine and feminine were much broader umbrella categories that had multiple expressions within it. The, end, the idea of gender is even more complicated than that. While the Mukhanathun were technically a state of being, that is, you were a Mukhanathun, that is, they were believed to consistently present as feminine throughout their life, there were also more flexible ideas around gender, and it's important to explore those as we develop these nuances with each and every podcast. Um, during the 9th century, there was a caliph known as Al-Amin, who was the ruler of the Abbasid Empire. And Al-Amin, we talked about, he is a man who was what we would consider openly gay or bisexual. He was married, but he had a very clear favorite towards, a favor towards men. He preferred to sleep with men, he preferred to be in the company of men, and in fact he had a favorite lover, Kawthar. And Alamin's sexuality was not much of an issue. In fact, it was far more controversial that he let his mother rule most parts of the empire. That was more controversial. Um, there was this idea that somehow he was, he was being led astray by his mother, um, rather because she wasn't a queen, she was his mother. Um, so there, that was more controversial than the fact that Alamin had a boyfriend. That was not the big issue. And again, so this is a reminder that homoeroticism was pretty widely accepted, that the Khalif, the leader of the Islamic world at the time period, could be gay without much controversy. The issue that does come up with this is uh, that if he's gay, what does that do with succession? So bisexuality and same-sex desire are pretty normative. It's pretty in line with the time period. But there's still this idea that whether you're bisexual, whether you're gay, you still have to further the line, particularly if you're part of this sort of royal line. You have to have children. That is the main anxiety here. And so we often see this question around Al-Amin, not that, oh, he has a male lover, he's an evil sinner, he's going to hell, but, oh my God, why is he not having children? Like, he can fuck who he wants, but it's important for him to still have kids. That was like the language we see in all of the texts, the anxiety that if he doesn't have kids, that's going to have consequences for the succession. And so his mother, Zubaydah, 
worried that she's not going to have grandchildren. That sounds familiar to, to basically all mothers all the time, right? Our mothers are always asking when they're having grandchildren. My mom asks me all the time. Like, she's like, when are you getting married? And when are you going to give me grandchildren? And I'm just like, what? What? <laughs> grandchildren? I'm too young. Let's not think about this. Though I'm probably coming up at the age that I should be thinking about children. Maybe not. <laughs> Anyways, worried that she's not going to have grandchildren. She comes up with this scheme. She says that, look, if he only likes men, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all the beautiful women at court and we're going to dress them as men. And so they did. They doned on the clothing of young men and they even penciled on fake mustaches. So this is like the hipster period before hipsters were the thing. You remember that period of like mid-2010s where everyone was like, obsessed with mustaches it's made a comeback now i think it's making a comeback but like the mid 2010s everyone was really obsessed with these like hipster mustaches the uh handlebar mustache and the twirly mustache that was a disastrous period let's not bring that back anyways this became actually a fashion trend when uh you know these women showed up and they're dressed as men it was exciting it wasn't scandalous it was thrilling it became a trend for at least a generation of women actually gender bending adopting male clothing manners and fashion and even sort of swagger they became known as the rolamia the historian almasudi tells us this quote Zubaida chose young girls notable for their elegance of their figures the charm of their faces She had them wear turbans and gave them clothes woven and embroidered in royal factories and had them fix their hair with fringes and love locks and draw it back at the nape of their neck after the fashion of young men. She dressed them in clothes fitting wide-sleeved robes called kaba and wide belts which showed off their waists and curves. Then she sent them off to her son. Al-Amin, as they filed into his presence, was enchanted. He was captivated by their looks and appeared with them in public. This is translated by London Stone. This is cool. This is really fascinating because not only are we looking at women wearing male clothing, so like, think flappers era stuff, right? Wearing sort of masculine and male clothing. But then it becomes a fashion trend because they show up in the arm and arm with the Khalif and he's fascinated with them. Women start to adapt to it. And so for a generation, you have this expression by certain women uh, where they would perform masculine gender stereotypes, wearing masculine clothing, the Rulamia are women, technically, who present as men. I mean, they're here quite literally designed to be or, or um, portray themselves as sexual competitors to the men that Alamin is attracted to. So it's not just that they're wearing men's clothing, they're performing as men. Because Alamin is only attracted to men, they perform as men in order to get his attention. Isn't that interesting? Like they set themselves up as sexual competitors by becoming men. Now, what's fascinating here is that in addition to themselves sort of gender bending, it becomes a fashion trend. 
we start to see that women start increasingly dressed as men. So there's like a period of about a hundred years, even after Al-Amin, where women would wear men's clothing as a fashion statement of sorts. And their popularity with this khalif really allows them to express you know, expand. Masudi remarks that many women in Abbasid society started dressing and presenting as men, so that at least for a hundred years, it was a popular trend. And then it's revived occasionally throughout Islamic history. We find other examples of it. But this is really fascinating, that what starts off as this sort of elite practice then percolates throughout Abbasid society, and you see more and more women adapting the customs, manners, and clothing of men. And the key here is that it's not just the clothing. It's the penciling in of the mustache, so the idea of performing there, right? But also of the manners that are adapted. They are described as taking on the manners of young men. This shows us pretty clearly how gender was performed and socially constructed, and far from a fixed category. Sahar Amr points out that the act of wearing men's clothing and presenting as men may also have opened the door for what she calls lesbians and lesbian-like women, who normally express their same-sex desire, attraction, and their love in private spaces, but now could be more open and public. Now, we talked about uh, homoeroticism among women and lesbian love in a previous episode. We talked about Hind al-Zarqa and Hind al-Numan, two of the most famous lesbians in Islamic history who were praised as having true loyal love between them without any controversy. But there was always this idea that sexuality, particularly same-sex sexuality and all types of sexuality, were private acts. That is, that they, you did them in the privacy of your home. They were carried out in the harem. They were carried out at home. But with the act of publicly doning on men's clothing, this may open the door a little bit to more public acts of affection. And so there is this idea that, that women could walk with other women as their girlfriends, so to speak, because they're technically presenting as men. And that's really kind of fascinating to so you would see lesbians and lesbian-like women sort of this lesbian-adjacent concept that Sahar Amr puts forth, um, and how both of them may have found the experience of wearing men's clothing a liberatory act, or at least an act that opens up the doors, that takes you out of the sort of private space and into the public space. The second feature of the Ghulamiyya here is the concept of perhaps trans men. Now, we've seen in the Mukhanathun this idea of transitioning from a biological male to presenting as a woman. And with the Ghulamiyya, we see something similar. While for some, the act of gender bending may have been a fashion trend, or at least merely temporary, in other ways, we have this idea of it being part of their identity. So for some, it may have been the act of putting on a costume or a presentation. And for others, it was intrinsic to who they were as a person. It was part of their identity. There are clear cases of individuals who continue to present as male going forward and who take on male identities. In other words, they start off with the names of women, 
But then they start to wear men's clothing and present as men and later are addressed as men with masculine names. That's interesting. It indicates that there's some concept here of social transition and recognizing it. In, for example, literary works like the Dahat al-Himma, uh, there are individuals like Aluf who take on the role of a warrior wearing men's clothing and engaging in warfare. Now, this is markedly different from other women who can be warrior women. We know that warrior women existed throughout Islamic history. There were archers and swordswomen, powerful pirate queens, all sorts of warrior women, but they retained their identities as a woman. In other words, they were a woman operating in uh, overtly masculine uh, professions, the art and practice of war. But in the case of Aluf, they declare, I do neither long for marriage nor for men, but my heart has an inclination for the ladies. In other words, Aluf becomes fully a man taking on masculine a masculine name, taking on masculine characteristics, taking on masculine dress, and even directing their love towards women. So Aloof isn't a lesbian. Aloof is heterosexual because Aloof has become a man and their affection towards women is therefore heterosexual. This is interesting. We're looking at identity changes here, not just fashion trends with the Ghulamiyya. We find a very interesting and similar process among what is known as the Bacha Posh in Afghanistan. They also exist in some parts of, of Pakistan and India and South Asia more broadly, but mostly in Afghanistan. Throughout the medieval, early modern and modern period of Afghan history, there is evidence of people called the Bacha Posh, or men dressers. Like in the case of the Ghulamiya, the status of the Bacha Posh is simultaneously temporary and at other times permanent. In many instances, the Bacha Posh, who are born women, dress and present as men in order to take work in male-dominated fields. While women worked alongside men in rural Afghanistan and particularly in things like agriculture, there's still certain industries, if you think about it, that were exclusively male-dominated, like blacksmithing, right? Uh, or in the that would be the pre-modern example. In the more modern example, factory work. These are male-dominated spaces. If a family, for example, had only daughters then, what would you do? One of the daughters may temporarily become a bacha posh until puberty. What's fascinating is that this isn't actually an attempt at deception in any way, shape, or form. Everyone in society knows that the Bacha Posh are girls dressed as boys. In other words, it's not an act of deception, but an act of social transition. They become men for that period of time, socially, so that they can function as men. We believe and there's some debate over this. Nancy Dupree, the historian of Afghanistan, mentions the Bacha Posh and believes that the Bacha Posh probably originated from periods of time in which men were away from war uh, and women needed to, to sort of 
operate publicly in the context of warfare. They were afraid of things like being caught by enemy soldiers, and so they took on the guise of men as a protective measure. We're not sure because the origins are unclear. What is clear is that they do socially function as men. And for example, Dupree mentions that um, that the Bachaposh even acted as guardians of the palace in the Amir. In other words, as soldiers, as men, as male soldiers here. So what we're seeing here is this idea that you can socially transition. Now, usually the Bachaposh is a sort of temporary gender bending, but it can sometimes become permanent. There are instances, for example, of a permanent transition. There are Bachaposh who no longer identify as women, who continue to present as men for the rest of their lives, declaring that they have the souls of men and therefore are men. That's fascinating. So the Bachaposh technically is some type of temporary social transition. A young girl presents as a man, takes on a man's name, operates as a man, either for protective means or to support the family or to get access to a male-dominated industry. They are understood as women who are wearing men's clothing, but they are given the social status of men. Therefore, there's a type of social transition. But then once they reach puberty or the age of marriage, they can transition back. And it's their decision if they want to do so or not. Will they come back to being a woman or will they continue to live as a man? And some declare that they have the souls of men and therefore will continue to live as men. And so perhaps, again, we see the idea of a temporary gender-bending, temporary social transition but also perhaps the concept of a trans man, right? Of a person who is biologically born a woman, but then who transitions and continues to live their life as a man and is accepted as a man, taking on male attributes, a male name. So this idea really tells us that both the Rulami and the Bachaposh represent a type of flexibility and fluidity of gender presentation that you might not think was part of Islamic societies. But here you have two overt examples. And there are other examples of of gender bending socially as well. We'll talk about. So while both of these have sort of connections with uh, gender bending, gender presentation, but also with trans men, there's another one we'll be talking about. There are others who are much more socially about gender bending rather than shifting their identities. It's about taking on and performing gender. For example, in the Ottoman Empire, they are the Kosek who were young men who were dressed as feminine. They practiced uh, this um, sort of dance, and it continued well up until the, the time period of photography, so like the 19th and early 20th century. We actually have some really, really cool images of them. They are adorned uh, decadently with like countless bangles and makeup and richly adorned silken clothes and golden embroidery and elaborate henna on their hands. They're really quite iconic. You've got to you've got to see these images. But the Cosec continue well into the 20th century. We're going to talk about uh, in future episodes when things start to change. We'll talk about when in fact the Cosec become outlawed because they do under the law. Now, the researcher Metin And describes them as dancers, they're entertainers and musicians. 
and they write, Their dancing consisted of leisure walks, keeping time with clappers or finger snapping, short mincing steps, slow movements, suggestive gestures, sometimes somersaulting, wrestling, rolling upon the ground, and other such games and mimicry. While the Cossack was overtly linked to music and entertainment, there is also a sexual component here that we should identify. One European writer, Babatsky, says, The emperors themselves fall in love with the pages. In fact, in such a way, ravishing and sh- in such a way, rash and shameful in manner that they sell themselves to them, so to speak, as slaves. In a way, they just made them to become their favorite. So here you can see two very important bits. One, you can see the Ottoman understanding of sex and desire. The Cossack were lovers of emperors. They were boyfriends to the emperors, and the emperors loved them to such a degree that they were shameless in their love. They were willing to become the slaves of the Cossack, slaves to these men who present as women. At the same time, you can also see the disdain that Europeans have. And this is really crucial. I want you to highlight this, put an asterisk next to it. We're going to revisit this in future episodes because European attitudes towards Islamic sexualities here, very, very important. The Ottomans themselves, so no issue. It's like, this Cossack is hot. (laughs) I am to be a slave to your hotness is what this emperor is saying, right? I'm a slave to your hotness. It's very Britney Spears, right? But then the Europeans are seeing this and go, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself, you slut. (laughs) They are not viewing this in good ways. They're slut-shaming the Ottomans, in other words. The Ottomans, on the other hand, see no problem with it. And the, the contrast between the two, the acceptance and tolerance found in the Ottoman Empire, contrasting with the European disdain for it, is really crucial for understanding how things change. So put an asterisk next to this. We know that Sultan Murad, for example, had a Cossack lover, uh, Kuluglu, uh, which is a, one of those brilliant Turkish names that seem like only Turkish people can pronounce. Um, but Kuluglu is an, a, a Cossack who was one of the primary lovers of Sultan Murad. So we have the elaborate lives of the individuals like the Cossack. What is significant here is that in addition to telling us a lot about Ottoman sexuality, is that the Cossack could technically operate in female spaces. So in the same way that the Bajaposh and the Rolamia, and more it's more 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 than the Rolamia, the Bajaposh could operate in male spaces by adopting male clothing, the Cossack could operate in female spaces because we have evidence of them in the harem. In other words, the Cossack, by performing as feminine, could socially enter women's quarters. These are really interesting ways of looking at ambiguity by noting things like gender segregation was not as strict as people think it was. Uh, We'll talk where gender segregation really comes from in future episodes. Um... But also the idea that if a person is socially transitioned as a different gender than their biology, than their what their biological birth gender was assigned to them was, then yeah, they can enter into the space they identify with. 
that a butcher poche can be in male spaces and that a cosette can be in female spaces. This is, in many ways, an interesting challenge to the sort of controversy around the North Carolina bathroom bills that are going on, right? So this is a really important nuance that's found that is sometimes missing there. Now, outside of the court, the Cossack operated as part of entertainment and music guilds. They were a professional class. So this is a professional class of performers. Now, Ottoman society was a Turkic warrior society, and it was made up of an elite soldier class. They're known as the Azkari. That's what really makes up the Ottoman upper echelons, if you will. This elite society valued hypermasculinity. And so to become feminine was not something that they sought after and was indeed rebuked. It was not a good thing for a hypermasculine man to adopt feminine clothing. But at the same time, femininity was cherished as an object of, of love, if you will. And so we can say that the Ottomans viewed sexuality not through the lens of identity, heterosexual, homosexual, but through the lens of beauty, those who appreciate beauty and those who are beautiful, the one who loves and the beloved, the penetrator and the penetrated. This is important for a couple reasons. One, it reminds us that gender is not a binary, that while they have this sort of hypermasculinity, that hypermasculinity does not keep them from appreciating male beauty. The appreciation of beauty is ungendered. A masculine man was not necessarily to become a Cossack because that would be uh, taking away from his masculinity. But they were to appreciate the femininity in others, including the Cossack. They were to love without reservation or hesitation. This is really fascinating. Like An Ottoman emperor, big, soldierly, burly dude, falling in love with a Cossack and, and, and giving themselves over in love and passion and desire unreservedly is not remotely controversial. It's the natural thing. For them. They understood it as the natural expression of what it meant to be an Ottoman man. An Ottoman man was to appreciate beauty, and that beauty was ungendered. It included women and included Cossack, who were these feminine men. You appreciated the beauty in both. There is no controversy in that regard. The, fa in that regards. the famed Ottoman poet Nadim really highlights the unabashed love that men had for the Cossack and their beauty. He writes, Today a beautiful Cossack has pierced my heart. He has rosy cheeks, wears a rose-colored gown out of violet, flickering silk. He has two beauty spots, a silver-colored neck, a sun-like countenance. He has rosy cheeks, wears a rose-colored gown out of violet, flickering silk. Translation by Klebe. This is, this is not a restrained love. This is not chaste love. This is not courtly love. This is deep, erotic, passionate love. These were men that were throwing themselves at the feet of these Cossack and saying, pick me, love me, let me make love to you. They were ripping their hearts open for these Cossack because it was the right 
This was the natural expression of masculinity. To be masculine was to appreciate beauty, and that included an ungendered understanding of beauty. That's really complicated. Today, you might have a difficult time wrapping your head around that. Like you tell a Middle Eastern person, you know, that, that you're writing love poetry for your bro, and they might look at you a little bit weird. But the reality is that this was an entirely natural expression in the Islamic world, the love of the beloved and the beloved being ungendered here. I mean, the writing is, is pretty erotic. I mean, we see languages around wanting to fuck and wanting to lay and wanting to sleep. It can be poetic and beautiful and, and abstract, and it can be deeply raunchy because all of it was considered natural and beautiful. In Egypt, the Khosek have a counterpart known as the Khawal. They were similarly dressed, though they often had more elaborate braids. The Khawal performed raqs sharqi, a type of belly dance. And like the Khosek, the Khawal sometimes has sexual connotations. It was someone you slept with. So they were a dancer, an entertainer, and also someone that you slept with. So here you can see cross-regionally the idea of gender bending here. Now, both of these individuals generally had some type of social function. Both the Kusek and Khawal were part of uh, festivals. They were part of parties, marriages, uh, circumcision parties. These events would have Hoseks and Hawals present as entertainers. They were incredibly popular and widely accepted in both Ottoman and Egyptian society until relatively recently. And again, we'll talk about the until re- relatively recently part in a future episode. And like the other figures that we've discussed, they were also pretty ambiguous in their gender representation. Many times the Khawal and the Khosek were temporary positions. They would dress as feminine only in certain social contexts like festivals. They may do this work for a few years and then stop and when they did they could get married and have children of their own without any issue. Or they may continue for much much longer. Sometimes they continue to present as feminine each even outside of those social contexts. For them, being a Kosek or Khawal was a lifelong identity. So again, like the Pachaposh, we have some ambiguity and an understanding of gender as contextual, that there's more to gender than just a fixed binary. Often when Khoseks and Khawals continued their identity, they would become teachers or mentors to other Khoseks and Khawals, teaching them how to dance properly, teaching them how to be alluring, how to put on makeup, uh, in other words, how to perform as Khosek and Khawal. Now contrast this with the Mustarjil. The Mustarjil are born women, but who present as men for the rest of their life. In Iraq, they are deemed men. They eat with the men, they wear men's clothing, and they even sleep with women. They sexually sleep with women. They are described as having the hearts of men. In other words, today they may be described as trans men, people who were born biologically as women, but who then transition and live as men, and who are therefore accepted as men. They are socially treated as men. There's no controversy regarding them. In other words, there's this idea that because they now identify as men and dress as men, they can now operate in male spaces, eat with the men, they are referred to with male pronouns without any controversy at all. 
each of these figures that we have examined today reveals something important, that in the Islamic world, far from being a fixed biological reality, gender was understood as socially constructed, performed, and incredibly flexible. People performed gender outside of biological conventions and social expectations. They did so contextually, temporarily, and at other times permanently transitioning. And if you've been keeping past, you know, if you've been keeping track in the past, we've said that at minimum there were three expressions of gender. Well, now we can expand it even further. We can include masculine men, feminine women, eunuchs, which we'll talk about, um, trans and non-binary and intersex folk, masculine women, and feminine women. All of this was part of the Islamic conception of gender. In other words, masculinity and femininity had a great deal of range of expression and were broad umbrella categories that allowed movement between them. They were not fixed. And this is true of all of Islamic history from Central Asia to South Asia, from Southeast Asia to the Ottoman world, to North Africa. All of the Islamic world experiences gender in this way, as socially constructed and historically contingent, as flexible and fluid. And we're going to talk about how these ideas continue to develop in our future episodes, and then we'll talk about how they end up changing, because we need to recognize the roots of why the modern world looks the way that it does. So I want to really give you the tools for understanding why the modern Middle East is in many ways so radically different from its pre-modern Islamic past. We will continue with our explorations of gender and sexuality in Islamic history in future threads, or future episodes, I should say. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, stay smart, history nerds. Thank you.